All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Illusion of Consensus with myself, Rav Arora, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. We are really excited to bring you this new episode where we are going to be doing a deep dive into social media censorship and the government being involved with that and how over the course of the pandemic, social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, YouTube and other platforms have increasingly been censoring dissenting voices like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya as a prime example of that. So uh, we look forward to bringing you this episode and uh, excited to uh, dive in here. Uh, Jay, welcome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this, Rob. I've been looking forward to this for a while. It should be fun to talk. Yeah, and we just want to quickly thank um, our growing audience. We really appreciate people supporting and subscribing us. We look forward to bringing you uh, more and more original content with a Q&A coming up soon. Um, so you can ask your questions to Dr. J. Uh, we got a lot of uh, new articles lined up as well with uh, my personal experiences with media censorship. Um, so we look forward to uh, bringing you all of that. Should be a lot of fun. Um, and I'm, you know, the Q&A is going to be a, a lot of fun. I've been following some of the questions that have come in from the last, from the podcast we just uh, let, let out. And um, I mean, I think our subscribers are, are, are quite a perceptive bunch. It'll be fun to do the Q&A. Yeah, yeah, of course. So let's get started. Let's begin with, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, what your view was at the time on the information landscape and what social media was doing at the time. Um, I was not a close follower of that um, in March, April, and the summer of 2020. And I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that later. But what was your sense early on in the pandemic with regards to the information landscape and social media censorship? Well, if I, if I look back to March of 2020, um, actually, I, I, I had an invitation from Bloomberg to appear on one of their news news uh, panels, uh, news shows. To, and it was, I think it was like late February, early March. And they were interested in my take on the economic effects, the potential economic effects of a coming pandemic. Uh, I didn't know how much to say. And frankly, because we didn't, you know, we didn't know very much then. Um, but I, I have to say it was, I was actually surprised because I had been years since anyone had I'd ever been on TV. I'd never wrote op-eds before that. I'd never, uh, I never really uh, sort of sought out media attention. Uh, and what, what I, uh, but it was like shortly after that, I think it was like middle of March and the lockdown started happening. And it became very clear that the media was going to put forward one narrative. And you, if you were outside of the narrative, if, there, if you had things to say that were in tension with that narrative, it's going to be difficult. And they, they, it was, it was like the, the censorship almost, from, you know, almost from the very beginning, I felt it. Uh, I gave an interview with Reuters in early April, late, early April, late March, 2020, where the, the, author, uh, the author of the piece wrote a very, it's actually a very perceptive piece, wanted to talk about the collateral harms from lockdowns, uh, like domestic abuse, depression, uh, a child abuse for you know if you have locked people in with in in, in uh, if you lock people into their homes with children sometimes you get child abuse they don't get to go to school and that so the child abuse doesn't get picked up they wanted to write write about that and in that interview I told the reporter 
that the I thought that lockdowns were the single biggest public mis, of health mistake in history, something along those lines. And he didn't put that in the piece. And later he called me up, you know, he's a friend of mine. He's like, look, I, I, I ran it by my editors. And if he, they thought that if I put that in the piece, your reputation would be destroyed, Jay. And so I didn't put it in to protect you. Uh, it, I mean, that was, that was striking. Um, what I found l l later, so based from FOIA documents, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act documents, revealed uh, a re uh, regarding correspondence between a bunch of people in social media, top people in social media and uh, the government, that is that, that there was actually a systematic effort jointly between social media and government actors to suppress and control what was said online from the very earliest days of the pandemic, March of 2020. So for instance, Rob, there's an email from Mark Zuckerberg, you know, the head of Facebook, to Fauci, where he offers help to Fauci about how to get get, get Fauci's message out, how to get the government's message out. And he, he uh, offers to put Fauci on some podcast, and then he then he offers some special help, which is actually it's not clear from the emails because they're redacted. But in the context, it's very clear that they want to set up some sort of regular way for the government to tell Facebook, what sorts of things should be permitted on the platform, what sorts of things shouldn't be permitted on the platform. Um, I got emails from a, a, a colleague of mine in Germany who was telling me about his, uh, about how his, uh, his university was threatening him because he made some, uh, you know, gave some, some talk or something where he was, we made some anti-lockdown comments. I was absolutely floored. Um, and then uh, I, I saw, in, again, from the earliest days of the pandemic, a couple of essays in Medium, one by Aaron Jin and another by uh, AJK. Uh, AJ's essay was called The Curve is Already Flat. Aaron's was a, was a wide-ranging consideration of COVID, uh, co uh, sort of COVID science and policy. Um, and both were censored by Medium. I mean, this is this place where you're supposed to be able to write your essays and the audience can judge. They both argue that, that COVID has spread more widely. This is, I think, in March or April 2020, that more widely than public health realized at that point. And the infection fatality rate was likely lower than the case fatality rate. And Medium censored both their essays for being dangerous to public health. Yeah, that's incredible. I thought Medium was another one of these bastions of free speech. But I guess Substack appears to be the only last man standing on that front because they refuse to censor even the most heretical and dissenting voices on COVID. But I, I didn't know Medium was doing that. Yeah, Medium was doing that early in the bed. I think they're still doing that. Okay. Um, and then, um, you know, in, in April of 2020, I uh, conducted a study where I measured antibodies in the population in Santa Clara County around here. Around, around Stanford, where I live, um, and another one in, in L.A. County. Um, and we found exactly what, in some ways, exactly what Aaron and A.J. were saying, that, in fact, there were 40 times more infections than cases, that, uh, and that the infection fatality rate was much lower than, than, than people realized at the time. People, at the, you know, the World Health Organization said the death rate was something like 3, 4, 5%. And, in fact, what our study found in the popular, in the, Community at large, not not including nursing homes, was that was that the in fact the infection fatality rate was was two out of a thousand or three out of a thousand somewhere in that range. 
And uh, so then that study, it, that kind of went viral. A lot of, uh, a lot of media uh, outlets interviewed me, including NPR. And it was really striking when I was in that interview with NPR. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm explaining there was also the study. To me, I'm still, I don't have a ton of media experience at that point. I'm just a scientist describing the results of a study. And the reporter asked me if I was worried that people would listen to the study results, the scientific study results, and intentionally seek out getting COVID, have COVID parties. I mean, I was really taken aback. I was, I mean, like I was saying a fact about the infection fatality rate, the the uh, the fact that early April the lockdowns had not stopped COVID from spreading pretty widely in LA County and Santa Clara County, um, and uh, and I thought th those were important from a policy points of view, but the the reporter was only concerned about what effect these true scientific facts would have on the behavior of the uh, of. Uh, behavior by people out there that, that were listening in, you know, NPR listeners. And she was afraid that it would make people behave irresponsibly. They'd go out and, you know, try to catch COVID. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this, I think a lot of the media, uh, at, at least back then, it was motivated by this, this desire to, to reiterate and reinforce the public health messaging and anything against it, they thought of as dangerous. I think partly that was organic. Um, I mean, in late May, April, 2020, I gave some interview. Um, I, I think it was to Peter Robinson in the, in his uncommon knowledge podcast, where I mentioned that contact tracing was largely a useless way to control this disease. This disease by then it was really clear to me was spread by spread you know, in the air by aerosols, by breathing. And if that's true, that meant that, um, you know, you're not going to know who gave you COVID. If you ha happen to be in a room where someone breathed in that room before had COVID and you come in later, uh, well, I mean, now all of a sudden you, you're going to, you can get COVID without, e without even knowing who, get, who, who, you know, who you breathe near or next to. If ventilation systems are such that, uh, that they, that they, that they're not sort of filtering things out, it can, it can spread through rooms and things. So I, so I, I just said, so contact tracing seemed to me, especially when you had a vast number of cases uh, during waves was going to, those systems were going to get overwhelmed and there were all these like incentive effects, right? So if you're, if you're going to be contact traced, um, you know, you, 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 a lot of people actually don't want to talk with the government. They'll just not answer. Um, so it just seemed to me like it's, this is not like HIV where contact tracing is really useful. Contract tracing wasn't going to work. And I said this on this interview. The Stanford Human Subjects Review Board, on a, on a study that had nothing to do with contact tracing, they mentioned this interview as a potential human subjects violation. So Stanford tried to silence me on it. I fought back. I told, uh, I wrote the Human Subjects Board, said, look, this is a violating my academic freedom as a professor, and they backed down. But it absolutely shocked me. Like all of these entities, the media, the government, even, even my own university, viewed the challenge that I was giving to public health as so dangerous that they wanted me to stop, to silence me. Yeah, that's incredible yeah. That, that they were doing that. Um, you earlier, you mentioned the NPR article um, and what the journalist was concerned with. And that that is very troubling, but quite representative of what's going on 
in mainstream media, which explains a lot of the rise in Substack journalism. But it, it's, it seems to be that increasingly, you know, from the start, um, you're facing a lot of resistance for strange and unknown reasons uh, why people are pushing back so hard against you, even though you're not con- you're not promoting conspiracy theory or anti-vax hysteria. You're just dealing with facts. You had a study, the Santa Clara study, um, but it, it's strange why there is such a growing uh, monolith of views that automatically deems any deviation from that as heretical. I mean, the funny thing about that, Rob, is that, um, you know, a lot of them, I think, a lot of these outlets were, I think, were thinking that they were going to help public health by doing this. But ironically, by not permitting an honest and open discussion with contrary viewpoints, they ended up harming public health. The public health, the public confidence in public health is as low as it's ever been. Suppose public health had gotten feedback from the public and from people like me and, t- and taken it rather than try to suppress it. They might have had to change their policies and, the, and they, they would have ended up in a much better place more f- with fewer lives lost if they had done that. Um, media, in, in that sense, I think in the early days, uh, re- they actually hurt both themselves and public health by not just you doing what they usually do, which is, you know, like air true things, air, air things that are uh, if there's controversies, like report the controversies and don't don't just try to pretend that you know exactly what's good for public health in the middle of a pandemic when when so much science is in flux. Right. Um, and also in 2020, you see doctors who are writing about natural immunity facing incredible resistance and censure from medical boards. Uh, Dr. Clavinder Gill I know that's a case you've been following. She faced a lot of censure, uh, censure for uh, from medical boards, uh, even with the risk of losing her license. Oh, this one's this is a shocking story, and I'm glad you brought it up, Rob. Um, Dr. Gill is a, is a very prominent uh, physician in Ontario. Uh, you know, she's like been uh, head of like physician societies there, um, and she, during during the pandemic, especially in the early days of the pandemic. She's reporting on studies that have come out in the medical literature that suggest that if you've had COVID and recovered, you have pretty good protection against both reinfection, at least until there's another variant, and also uh, severe disease on reinfection. She's and she's she's mentioning this on on Twitter. Um, she's also on Twitter saying things that are again completely supported by the scientific data on the harms of the lockdown. And, you know, I, I, you live you live through the Canadian lockdowns. I mean, I imagine that was it was pretty pretty severe. And some, and I mean, like during you know one period, you weren't allowed to travel if you weren't vaccinated, right? Um, so she's in twenty twenty anyway. She's she all she's doing is reporting scientific facts on Twitter. And um, the medical board in Ontario, the the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, uh, investigated her. When after her license, she's still, I think, in the middle of this process where she's where, where she's like uh, fighting with the medical board for tweets that were absolutely 100% accurate. But for whatever reason, the medical societies in Canada decided that they would try to destroy the careers of even good doctors like Dr. Gill simply for saying facts that were inconvenient to the, the COVID narrative. Yeah, I remember reading her tweets at the time about natural immunity 
harms of lockdowns and it all struck me as very reasonable. Um, but she was also promoting hydri, uh, I, I butcher the name every time, hydri, <laughs> hydroxychloroquine. Yes. Yeah. I, I butcher um, every time. I, I just double checked as well. In one of her tweets, that was one of the things that she thought was very effective against COVID alongside T cell immunity and quote unquote, the truth, you know, about lockdowns and about COVID. Um, but what, what do you make of her support of that drug for COVID? Well, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the tweet that, you, that you're referring to, but I'll say this. In the early days of the pandemic, where we didn't have any good treatments at all, none, and there were people hypothesizing that hydroxychloroquine, which worked, there was some history for why it would, would, might work, right? It wasn't out of the blue, it, but it, 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 uh, um, it has some antiviral properties, um, not so sort of a sort of a, a, a sort of immunomodulatory properties that uh, that suggested that maybe it would be useful in this setting. Um, and you have patients that you're seeing that are dying in front of you, and you have nothing to give them. And there's this physiological reasons why may, you, you know, people have hypothesized that this might work, and it's a relatively safe drug. I don't see why there should have been suppression of people discussing whether uh, trying it out and, and discussing whether it worked or didn't work, especially doctors in the front line like she was. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm baffled by this. I mean, ex post, we know that it doesn't work, right? There's some randomized trials and some good, uh, some of some good evaluations, uh, meta-analyses, for instance, by John Ioannidis and others that, that show that it, it you know, and the, the randomized evidence doesn't indicate that it works, but she, we didn't know that at the time. So why should, her tweets that if she's talking about that be held against her, like she's trying to start a discussion about what works and doesn't work maybe in the context of, of a pandemic where nothing is known to work in the outpatient setting at the, at the time. Shouldn't doctors be allowed to have that kind of conversation online? The ironic thing is the CBC article, which, uh, mentions and highlights some of her tweets says hydroxychloroquine has serious side effects it's not effective. This is in August 2020. Uh, yet the CBC took a very different line when mRNA vaccines were rolled out for everyone. Um, and they didn't have the same level of criticism for either the myocarditis concern or the, the menstrual issues associated with the vaccine. But they were very critical of, of Dr. Carr mentioning hydroxychloroquine at that time. I mean, it's funny that hydroxychloroquine is a, is a, is a standard drug. It's been around forever. I, when I was a medical student, I took it as malaria prophylaxis when I went to go, uh, uh, you know, for a few months when I was, uh, when I was doing a, like some rotations in India. Um, and for rheumatoid arthritis patients, it's, it's actually a mainstay of treatment for many rheumatoid arthritis patients, again, for immunomodulatory reasons. Um, so, you know, is it safe? I mean, if, yeah, I mean, if you, if you give it at a, at a normal dose, it's pretty safe. If you, you know, if you overdose, yeah, it's, it's gonna, it's not, not, you can, if you overdose anything, it's not safe. Um, the key thing is whether, uh, you know, does it work? Well, at the time we didn't know it didn't work. Uh, it became politicized because I think that, uh, the President Trump said something about it in one of his, his, um, his press conferences. And the, the immediate reaction was, well, if Trump thinks it's good, then it must not be good. And, uh, yeah, I just, I think, I think it's one of those things where like, it's very unfortunate that um, this kind of censorship happened so that uh, the doctors could, couldn't share what they were seeing uh, in experimenting with, it, uh, uh, with, the, with their patients before the randomized trials were done. 
Like, what are you supposed to do to, with patients then? Just tell them to stay home and die? I mean, that's essentially what medicine was saying to do. Hmm. Yeah, and it seems to be that a lot of the censorship efforts, whether from medical boards or social media um, or journalistic institutions, was to create fear in the population and bolster compliance for government mandated orders, whether on school closures or lockdowns and later on vaccine mandates and mask mandates early on as well. I, I agree with you, Rav. That seemed like the clear purpose. I still remember there was a, uh, there was this NBA player uh, who, uh, who contracted COVID very early on in the pandemic, Rudy Gobert. Mm. And, you know, he's a young, healthy, mid twenties, incredibly healthy NBA player. Right. And he gets COVID. And it does, it's like just not that big a deal for him. It's a cold for him. And he uh, he has this press conference where he's like making light of having gotten COVID. He like licks his finger, licks the microphone. You know, it's just playing around. And the, and then they basically shamed him for for modeling irresponsible behavior with COVID. He's a young, healthy man, right? So he's and you know, like he's he's not a doctor. He's just he's an NBA player. What does he know about 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 COVID? Um, and he's like he does his abject apology. The re the, I mean I think the, the whole structure of this sort of a censorship during the 2020 during 2020 was to remind people that they should take COVID really, really seriously. It's a really bad disease. Uh, rather than giving people accurate information that we already knew to be true, right? So for instance, the age gradient and mortality, older people are much higher risk of dying, younger people are much lower risk of dying. I mean, to this day, young people still vastly overestimate their probability of dying if they get COVID as a result of that propaganda. Mm. The, the idea that if you have COVID and recover, that you have good immunity, that was known in 2020, especially by the summer of 2020, those T-cell um, papers that come out in, in good places in, in, um, in summer of 2020, that was very, very clear when Dr. Gill was writing about that. I mean, I was reading those same papers. She was right on. That was good science. Why shouldn't people be allowed to know that science? Why should media take it on itself to 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 to, to alter what people see uh, so that they don't even see these true things that happen to be reassuring? And you know, it's, I think it was particularly bad in the United States and maybe Canada. Right? So there's a study done in um, of, of media tone regarding COVID in 2020. Um, in uh, published in the uh, um, the National Bureau of Economics Research, and it was interesting. Like the tone, although you know COVID's bad news, of course, just period. But the the tone was of it was so much more uh, ominous and dreadful in the U.S. media than it was uh, uh, in the international media. The international media would occasionally highlight ho hopeful stories of you know scientific developments or whatnot, whereas the U.S. media was uniformly sort of negative. This brings us to the Great Barrington Declaration in October of 2020, uh, which you signed alongside Dr. Martin Koldorf and Dr. Sinetra Gupta. Um, can you outline for us the resistance you faced from Collins, Fauci, WHO, social media? Um, what, what was the response that you got at the time? Well, so so I'll tell you the, the the what I what I saw at the time, and then I'll see I'll tell you what I learned about it afterwards about about what what happened, right? So the Great Barrington Declaration was this 
uh, call for focus protection of vulnerable older people um, and for lifting lockdowns, you know, especially for children and opening schools um, with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford and Martin Kulduff of Harvard, right? So um, Stanford, Harvard, Oxford. And it's we wrote it on October 4th, 2020, because it was really clear to us to, a few things. One is that the lockdowns were coming back. The lockdowns, which had failed to control the disease spread in April of 2020, people, it started to get lifted in many places in the summer, but the disease wasn't going away. It was really, really clear the disease was coming back. It was here to stay forever. And it was also clear that people were going to overreact to it by imposing lockdowns. This is why we wrote it in October 2020. Um, the, the initial reaction to it was, it seemed to me, completely unhinged relative to what we were talking about. Right, so I started getting death threats. I started getting calls from reporters asking me why I want to let the virus rip. Um, I guess I started getting, you know, like colleagues of mine, um, so, some of whom actually were very supportive, uh, but, but but would would call me and write me and say, well, you know, I support what you're doing, but I don't want to sign because, um, you know, I'm scared for my career. Uh, I, it was it was really it was really interesting reaction. Of course, a lot of people did sign. Tens of thousands of doctors signed on. Um, uh, almost a million regular people signed on, doctors, epidemiologists, scientists. It was reflecting the reality at the time that the scientific community was very divided about lockdowns. I actually think we were in the majority, although in the sense the sense I had had at the time was that we were, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, not the majority, but a substantial part of the minority, which was which was right in the scientific community. In fact, I think looking back, we were probably in the majority. Um, so it was, it was kind of a, it was a, I mean, it was a very stressful time after the Great Barrington Declaration because there was all this pressure um, and, and propaganda on the news media and elsewhere to make it look like we were suggesting something irresponsible, even though what we were doing is reflecting the reality the scientific community was divided on, on lockdowns. And the other strange thing, sometimes we'd get like these, these people are saying, well, we're crazy. Lockdowns are, are a thing of the past and never coming back. And then two weeks later, they'd say they'd be full on in favor of lockdowns. Um, so it was, it was, it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a kind of a strange environment. Now, uh, in some ways, I anticipated that we would get some pushback, obviously, because I think we were saying something that I knew that there were people in the scientific community that favored lockdowns. So I knew that we were going to be in a fight with them. That was not a surprise. Well, I didn't anticipate was that the news media would come out so vociferously against us, would would slander us, accuse us of wanting to you know, let grandma die when what we were calling for was focused protection of vulnerable older people. I was on a CNN show um, that, uh, that shortly after the Great Barrington Declaration where John Barry, who's the man who wrote this pretty good book about the 1918 flu, um, he, he was on, now he was a big uh, proponent of lockdowns. And at the, at the at, uh, you know, I was, and I was talking about focus protection of older elderly people and, you know, so how best to do it, it, it you know, sort of the, as, an, as an alternative to lockdowns. At the end of that interview, um, it, was, it was kind of a little debate between me and him and CNN. Uh, the, uh, John Barry threw out this slander. He said, well, why do you want to throw older people into, into concentration camps? I mean, I was flabbergasted, right? What the Great Barrington Declaration called wow. for was, I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. Like what we were calling for was, was resources, ideas, uh, so that 
uh, that local public health would engage in thinking how best to protect vulnerable older people in the communities where they live. The, the policies are obviously going to be very different in Vancouver than it is going to be in South Central LA, than it's going to be in, you know, sort of rural Idaho or something. Uh, and we were not calling for concentration camps. Um, in fact, it was the lockdowners who wanted to lock everybody in their homes. Um, so, it, and yet CNN, I mean, it did, you know, at least they had me on, I guess. For but, but it, it was it was really shocking that they, that they let that be the the last word. Um, I learned later, in part, what happened. Four days after we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, so we wrote it on October four, twenty twenty. It goes viral. Tens of thousands of doctors sign it, almost a million people sign it. And um, four days after we write the Great Barrington Declaration, Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, writes an email to Tony Fauci calling the three of us, me, Martin, and Sunetra, fringe epidemiologists. And then he calls for a devastating takedown of the premises of the declaration. He's, and, he's, and he asks Fauci, is this underway yet? This is, mind you, four days after we wrote it, Rob. I'm not even sure that they've read the declaration. Hmm. Uh, they, they start showing up in newspaper articles where they're saying things like, look at, uh, they're call, call, calling us fringe, um, you know, like ad hominem attacks and accusing us of wanting to let the virus rip. I got, a, I got a New York Times reporter called me up and spoke with, I spoke with her for two hours or an hour and a half to a, a, quite a long time where I'm where essentially she's trying to argue with me about how irresponsible I am rather than just writing the piece. And the piece comes out essentially says, I want to let the virus rip, even though I told her time and time again, that what I wanted was focused protection of vulnerable older people. Um, and, you know, she, she asked me about what I think about Francis Collins comments. I hadn't seen them. And it's very, very clear that top federal officials, scientific bureaucrats like Francis Collins and Tony Fauci used their, abused their power and their influence with the, the media to create this idea that it was a dangerous fringe thing to challenge the lockdowns in October, 2020. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was, and, and, you know, it's, it's one of these things where like, if you have the head of the NIH acting in that way, a lot of scientists will stay silent Right. I have a tenure at Stanford in part because I've been very successful in getting grants from the NIH. It's one of the measures of success in medical schools is that if you can win NIH funding in the United States anyways. And uh, so if you have um, the head of the NIH behaving in this, in this, uh, in this way, essentially abusing his power, a lot of scientists will, will silence themselves. Hmm. And I remember at the time you were you were on CNN, I believe, December of 2020, talking to Michael Smirkundish, uh, um, probably butchering his last name. But um, what was that interaction like? Was there resistance there as well about the Great Barrington Declaration? Well, I'm, I'm actually quite grateful to Michael. He's the only person on CNN that would have me on. Um, but that's the, that's the, he hosted that little debate between me and John Barry. I really wish he'd let me get the last word in because John Barry uh, was a very was a very irresponsible thing he did, characterizing Great Barrington Declaration as a call for uh, for concentration camps for older people. It was not that. It was a call for resources, ideas, and, and um, protection. Uh, in fact, the Great Barrington Declaration is explicit 
that if older people want to participate in society, they can. Like we don't, we're not, we weren't trying to force people to have a protection they didn't want. What we were for was protect, was offering resource. So for instance, um, rather than organizing DoorDash to deliver it to 20 year olds uh, who were online all the time, why not organize our society so that older people living alone can be, have their food delivered to them during times of high disease spread rather than asking them to go out to the grocery store during elderly only hours or uh, better ideas for offering hotel rooms for, uh, for older people living in multi-generational homes. So like if, you know, Johnny comes home and says, or calls and says, grandma, I think I've been exposed. Grandma can call local public health and then the hotel and say, and the, the local public health can offer her a hotel room while Johnny's uh, turns out, you know, ch check to see if he's positive or not for the next few days, right? Things like that, offering resources and ideas that are consistent with the, re the resources that are available in the community to protect vulnerable older people. That's what we were calling for. Uh, and that debate with Michael, uh, that with, uh, with John Barry that Michael Smartconish set up, I, I appreciate Michael for ha having that debate, but uh, John Barry was very, very irresponsible there. Part of the problem here that we've talked a bit about before is people in the kind of popular scientific community who are writing best-selling books on science. Um, one I remember um, after the Great Barrington Declaration, Dr. Christakis critiqued the Great Barrington Declaration saying that you were minimizing the pathogen and that your conclusion that we should have done far less was actually quite dangerous. He said this in 2022 in an interview and then on Twitter, he basically said about a few months ago that the Great Barrington Declaration was more political, more about politics than about science. And so when you have people reading news media, trusting people who've written best-selling books on popular science, uh, when they're hearing them talk about the Great Barrington Declaration in that kind of disparaging way, then there's, there's going to be this illusion of consensus, right, about your advocacy being far more fringe than it actually is. I didn't, I didn't realize Nick Christakis had said that. Yep. Um, that's irresponsible and also false, right? In fact, what we were calling for was accounting for the fact that older people were at higher risk. So to better protect vulnerable older people, if we failed that, by the way, right? Because we didn't actually do focus protection, 40% of the deaths in the United States have happened in nursing home settings. 80% of the deaths have been, have been over the age of 65 from COVID. Um, it, it was we were arguing for taking the virus more seriously, not less. And uh, the idea that it was politicized is also false, right? We were, we, you know, the, the, the document was translated into 40 languages. We got people from all over the world offering us translations. It was meant for the world, not simply for the United States politics and for American scholars to view uh, a global pandemic through the narrow view of, of American politics is, is just blinkered. Um, uh, the, the idea, and it, like, if it's political, like, what, which side, right? We were proposing something that the so uh, the the Swedish uh, uh, Social Democratic Party, a very left wing party, had adopted, had implemented, right? Uh, we were, if anything, proposing for a left wing policy. So uh, I think uh, I think it's it's unfortunate that people like Nick uh, characterize it in that way. It's just it's just I think partly because to to cover up that he was mistaken in his support for lockdowns, school closures, and all the rest. Um, I, I mean I think the other thing is like okay, we've been talking about uh, media like CNN, and and uh, we've been talking about uh, some of the some of the opposition from from like you know sort of popular science writers, but it's also you know uh, the 
the Google, Facebook, Reddit, they all suppressed the, um, the, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, in the first week that we put it out, Google de-boosted it. You couldn't find us on the front page. All you saw were hit pieces about us on the front search page for Google. Facebook took down the ZBD page for a week without any explanation. Um, I did an AMA, you know, asking anything with with the lockdown skeptics group at Red at Reddit, and they were they were telling me how difficult it was to be able to say anything about the Great Barrington Declaration. It was like a coup that they they got permission essentially to to, to interview me. Um, so it was it was one of these things where like uh, everywhere you looked, it was uh, there was there was going to be some kind of suppression or or distortion of it, anything but actually having an honest debate about whether the lockdowns in uh, that were coming in the winter of 2020 were, were reasonable or worthwhile. I just want to clarify also super quickly that uh, the interview I was referring to with Christakis, that was actually June of 2021, not 2022 with Syndemic, where he said those things, um, in, including also that you know, people supporting the Great Barrington Declaration were viewing the virus just as the flu and that the virus would go away. And that was a fantasy and a lie. Every single one of that is false. And that right? the- we did not call it the flu because it wasn't the flu. In fact, I'd done studies uh, measuring its infection fatality rate. It was, I mean, it was two out of a thousand um, in the Santa Clara study and two, or two, two and a half out of, of a thousand in, in the Santa Clara and LA County study, studies. That's, in my view, uh, two to 10 times higher than the flu. And the age gradient and mortality risk is so much higher, obviously not just the flu. The idea was just going to go away. That's a mistake by Nick in his understanding of herd immunity. Herd immunity doesn't mean that the virus goes away. Herd immunity is uh, helps explain why you have waves of cases, but it doesn't. it's not a synonym for eradication of the virus. Yeah, so sorry, just to be clear, um, it seems like he was implying that people didn't say directly you were saying that what people associated with sort of this movement, like the Great Barrington Declaration, um, were saying that the virus would just go away. And he's saying that was a lie and those people should be held accountable, including people like Great Barrington Declaration supporters. Well, I mean, I think why didn't why, if he should have reached out to me, if he wanted to have an honest conversation about what exactly we're talking about. In, um, I mean, June of 2021, that's around the time when the vaccine um, uh the vaccines, uh, uh, the, the debates over, or the, imposi- the the debates over the vaccine mandates were starting to happen too. If I recall, he was. I mean, it was. Yep. It, it was. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I wish Nick had had uh, behaved differently. Yeah, yeah. I I hope. Uh, yeah, I hoped at the time, and I I still have hope. Maybe you guys can have a, have a civil conversation and hash out some disagreements respectfully. Uh, obviously, he's he, there's an open invite for him on this podcast if he ever wants to. But uh, we, we definitely need to see more debates on this front, by the way, whether it's Nick or anyone else. Um, I've invited Peter Hotez to talk to me one-on-one um, as well. Well, or... you know, the funny thing is, like, Stanford, where I work, never hosted a debate. At, at some point during the pandemic, Mike Levitt is a Nobel Prize winner here, and uh, John Ioannidis, who's this, uh, you know, probably the most widely cited scientist in the world, approached the provost of Stanford and asked to set up a COVID policy seminar. Um, and... Essentially, she refused. Like the, the you have some of the most prominent people opposed to lockdowns or skeptical about lockdowns in the world here at Stanford, and yet uh, Stanford systematically re- refused to to platform a debate between us and people who disagreed with us. 
Um, there was, at one point during the pandemic, actually, I had uh, the former president of Stanford reach out to me to try to set a debate up, and no one would no one would agree to debate me at Stanford on the other side, even though a hundred of my colleagues signed a letter. Uh, essentially accusing Scott Atlas, a coll- again, another colleague of mine who was, who was a advisor to President Trump um, of, of sort of, 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 of sort of like uh, hurting the public by his advocacy against lockdowns. Um, and yet they wouldn't debate. Uh, it, you know, so you see this picture in response to the Great Barrington Declaration where government actors, people like Tony Fauci and Francis Collins essentially orchestrate up a propaganda campaign involving the media, social media, and I think even even universities to make it so poisonous to discuss the Great Barrington Declaration and its ideas, this sort of focus protection ideas, um, that that the, the public is going to, when they think about it, is going to think that that it's some some fringe thing rather than something that's a central concern for for you know tens of thousands of scientists. Uh, you know, if you look, by the way, uh, uh, Rob, if you look at the Wikipedia page for the Great Barrington Declaration, it's like it's written by my enemies. It's written in in a way that is so far from of uh, Wikipedia's normal uh, stated commitment to a neutral point of view. It's it's laughable, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think it's one of these things where, like, the propaganda campaign was pretty wide reaching and very very successful. Yeah, and the lack of debate between people with opposing views has been quite remarkable. Um, I mean, I, I reached out to many people. I, I reached out to uh, Eric Topol a few months ago. I had Clyde at Substack reach out. And yeah, there just was an interest. Um, I really hope that changes. I hope with our podcast, we can get some people to that disagree with us to come on to have. Well, Eric actually did debate with Martin Kuldorf at one point. I, I thought was that, was, that was quite interesting. Like I remember that. Yeah, 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 he did. Yeah. I do remember that on um, I forget, the the monk debates, I believe. Yeah, Platform that was quite an interesting debate. I thought. I mean, I, yeah. I I I have my views about who won that debate, but I was it was actually really good yeah. on Eric to agree to do it. And of course, good yeah. on Monk to agree to do it. Yeah, and and we hope some of these people who disagree with us um, would be interested in talking to us. Um, but there's been very there's been very little of that. That might be the only good example of, of actually there being a debate on this. But I mean, I've, I've had seen... a couple. I've had a few. I had one with Mark Lipsitch. Uh, hosted by the Journal of American Medical Association shortly after uh, the Great Barrington Declaration. Mm. Um, Howard Bachman, who's then the editor of the JAMA, invited me in this debate. And then I uh, had a couple with a couple of debates with Sten Verman, the head of Yale Public Health. I mean, there have been some exceptions, but they've been rare and uh, far between. The key thing is, like, even these debates happen in the context of this propaganda campaign where, you know, so you come in to a debate where it's like, it's, you know, like, like take that JAMA debate. It's it's uh, the headline for the debate is uh, a herd immunity strategy for COVID nineteen. Well, I was not the, the Great Barrington Declaration was not a herd immunity strategy for COVID nineteen. It was a focus protection strategy for COVID nineteen. Herd immunity is going to happen whether you follow a lockdown or if you follow focus protection or if you follow let it rip. All three strategies lead to the same point of, of, of basically vast populations of people with who have had COVID and recovered. Um, so the only question then is not whether you have a herd immunity strategy. That's nonsense. But what matters then is like how best, what's the right strategy to follow so that you minimize the the harm and and, and collateral harm from the strategy plus from COVID. Uh, that 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 was the debate, not herd immunity. So even even in these debates, that there'd be this setup 
made to make to make it look like our our position was fringe when in fact it wasn't fringe. And in terms of the social media response to the Great Barrington Declaration, I recall Google was deboosting search results, hit pieces were coming, and was it Facebook took taking down the Great Barrington Declaration for a week without any kind of reasonable explanation? Yeah, that happened. Uh, Spiked Online wrote about that. That was I still don't know why Facebook got, took down the page. Um, and you know, Google, Google deboosting that 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 happened. I, I mean, it was it was. Um, you know, you had this, the, just like early in the pandemic, you had the social media companies playing a very malign role uh, in, in putting their finger on the scale of the policies that they thought were more responsible. But I, I don't, you know, maybe we can talk about this later in this in this podcast, but I don't think they acted alone on this. I think they were taking their cues from the government. Uh, and then we, maybe I, I can tell you, give you some evidence of that later in this, this podcast. Hmm. Let's move on to 2021 with the advent of the vaccine and vaccine mandates beginning to be imposed uh, throughout various Western countries, the propaganda and censorship efforts uh, really did escalate at the time. Um, and government officials did vastly overstate the results of the clinical trials regarding inf- infection blocking um, and, of course, safety for, for various groups and whatnot. Um, what is- oh, that, was, that was incredible, right? So, like, the... The trials come out in December of 2020, and uh, they're, you know, these enormous 40,000-person trials, um, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, they all come out roughly around the same time. And um, the trials themselves do not ask whether the vaccine blocks transmission. Uh, they don't have that as a clinical endpoint in the trials. The, the trials last for two months. So, uh, you know, in terms of like follow-up for patients, so you only know whether the, whether whether the vaccine works for about two months. You don't know if there's going to be waning of the efficacy of the vaccine. But you see this headline number, 95%, was well, 95% against symptom, symptomatic COVID, not transmission of COVID, not all infection, including asymptomatic infections, right? None of that is checked in the trials. So the, the, yeah, the public health authorities didn't know that the, the vaccine stops transmission. And yet... If you mentioned that the vaccines don't stop transmission on social media, you're going to get censored. Labels will be put on your tweets saying you're, you're, you're spreading misinformation. If you, again, if you say anything about natural immunity, you're going to get, you're going to get labels put on you as, as, as if you're saying false things, even though the medical literature and scientific literature is very clear, increasingly clear by 2021 that immunity after COVID recovery is tremendously important. So you just get this intensifying propaganda and censorship effort after the vaccine comes when you would think that the vaccine would actually lead to less necessity for that. Even if you were okay with the censorship effort trying to get people to take the virus seriously in 2020, well, you have the vaccine available. People can can take it, get protected against severe disease and death. Why do you need any more of this? Um, So it, it, it it was really shocking. And then, oh, of course, then you also got like people like Tony Fauci, uh, like Walensky, like Biden, like Justin Trudeau, um, getting up in front of the public and essentially misrepresenting what the science is saying regarding infection blocking. They they demonized non uh, so, so the unvaccinated, said that they were a danger to the public based on no evidence. Right, it's bad enough if you do it. Even if it, if it's if it's true that the unvaccinated people can spread the disease more than vaccinated people, 
well, okay, you could say that, but you still, in responsible public health uh, messaging, you would never demonize anybody. But that's in fact exactly what uh, Fauci, Walensky, Biden, um, and, and Trudeau all did. And in terms of the certainty about vaccine efficacy and safety, obviously this definitive assertiveness that the vaccine would would stop transmission, people would become dead ends to the virus was wrong. But would you say there was at least some reason to speculate that the vaccine may stop transmission and may actually reliably turn people into quote-unquote dead ends for the virus at the time? I mean, obviously the data was limited, but was that a possibility still at the, at the time when you were reviewing the data? I mean, it was a possibility in December 2020, January 2021. Um, and so like, but the, the way I would have gone about it is I would have said that I would have said, I would, I would have said like, we hope that it stops transmission. Um, we're pretty certain that it'll protect you against severe disease. Uh, these vaccines should allow you to go live your life. In fact, I wrote an op-ed in December of 2020 with Sunetra Gupta in the Wall Street Journal arguing that, that, that the vaccines were going to enable lockdowns to be lifted within a month. As soon as we, the, the argument that I used was that we have enough doses in the West to vaccinate every elderly person rapidly within the, within the next month or two. And, you know, if that, when that happens, um, there should be no reason for a lockdown at all because the most vulnerable people are protected. Um, you know, but instead what you saw, Rav, and I'm sure you remember this, I don't know if, you have, if you're on Facebook or not, but like I have, I have a Facebook um, a face, Facebook account, um, you know, I track my, my cousin's new babies or whatever, and they're born um, or weddings. Uh, so so the, 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 the Facebook, my Facebook feed was filled with like, you know, young people, former, some, some even my former students um, bragging about how that they've gotten the vaccine in like January. 2021. This is at a time when vast numbers of older people around the world are not vaccinated. In a sense, they, the, the, they're like, they're bragging about being protected from something that they need. Whereas like people who really, really need the protection don't have access to it. And from a, from a public messaging point of view, public health should have been emphasizing not that young people are getting the vaccine, but that it's very important for older people to get the vaccine. Public health at the time was like arguing about whether they should prioritize young healthcare workers, minorities, and only only like almost as a second thought saying, oh, yeah, it's important that older people get vaccinated. Of course, older people have such a high risk from dying from it. They're the ones that are most likely, based on the information at the time, and I think still is true today, most likely to have benefited from the vaccination. Mm. Um, whereas for younger people, we didn't know about the side effects then. Uh, like myocarditis, but the marginal benefit is was lower at the time, right? Because the, the, they're less likely to die if they get COVID. Um, yeah, and and, so the, and you and you had people like I remember Joe Rogan on his podcast in April or May of 2021 said, "If you're a healthy 21 year old, do you need the vaccine? I don't think so. Um, now, you know, if you want to go get it, you sh- you know you can, but I don't think there's a necessity for people of that age group to get it." And he was demonized and pilloried and attacked everywhere in the mainstream media. And, you know, they, they selectively used various uh, popular epidemiologists in the scientific community to debunk this dangerous misinformation. But all of that was, was vindicated, right? It was, it was elderly people who primarily uh, seek, uh, sought to benefit from vaccination. For younger people, it was more unclear. 
I mean, there's an irony here, right? So like when we write the Great Barrington Declaration, you have all these people, um, you know, like pe even people like uh, uh, the, the, even the World Health Organization coming out saying uh, herd immunity is a dangerous idea. Um, and, uh, you know, so in fact, the World Health Organization changed its web page to, to redefine herd immunity to exclude immunity after recovery, to exclude natural immunity, only focus on vaccine immunity. Um, and so when the when the uh, va the vaccine comes out, you have Tony Fauci getting on the air saying, well, if we have 70 percent of people vaccinated, we'll have herd immunity. Well, if you have 80 percent, then we'll have herd immunity. If you have 90 percent, we'll have herd immunity. But he had no idea what fraction you needed because he didn't even know that it prevented transmission. It doesn't contribute that much to herd immunity, the vaccine, if it doesn't block transmission. And so you have this like ironic thing where like there's this big push to vaccinate everybody in order to achieve herd immunity when in fact the vaccine, because it wanes in efficacy against transmission very rapidly within two, three, four months after vaccination, um, it's not going to contribute much to herd immunity. You didn't need to have younger people vaccinated to get herd immunity with the vaccine. What you needed to do was vaccinate older people and protect them against severe disease if they'd happen to get COVID, which they were very likely to because it's not possible to stop it. You know, it's, or rather, it's very, very difficult to stop it. You have to, you have to undertake uh, all kinds of like, you know, like the, the, the conversations about focus protection we were having earlier, right? You have to... Uh, uh, you have to like reorder society so that you, just so you can do focus protection. I mean, given um, that that we'd failed at that, it was not going to stop. The disease was going to basically going to go. Everyone was going to get it at some point. It was really likely that uh, it was really important that older people be vaccinated. Instead, the emphasis was on young people and forcing everyone to get it. Hmm. And a focus on athletes as well. Um, a lot of prerequisites for both youth and professional sports being a vaccination at the time. I remember quoting Dr. Mike Hart in one of my articles about uh, hockey leagues across Canada, uh, soccer leagues as well, professional sports, uh, NBA, professional soccer, all mandating the vaccine for among the most healthiest, predominantly male athletes at the time. Um, and a lot of that didn't really make sense. But on the topic of censorship, um, you had the DeSantis Roundtable in March 2021, which you were a part of, which was talking about masking children, and YouTube pulled the video, right? Oh, that was really shocking. So um, that one, um, so Governor DeSantis invited me, uh, I think Martin was there, Sunetra was there, Scott Atlas was there, uh, to this policy roundtable in Florida. And... Um, I mean, I, 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 I prepared for this by reading the literature about masking and about, uh, in particular, about, uh, about, you know, whether there was a evidence that you could, you know, wearing masks, high quality evidence of just wearing masks, particularly for children, has any effect on disease transmission. Like you know, I, if, if, if you're around young kids and you watch them wear masks, you know, they touch their face all the time. They touch the mask, they pull it down beneath their nose. It's, it's actually pretty hard for, for young, especially young children to wear masks effectively. Even adults aren't pretty particularly good at it. Like there's gaps on the edge and side. If, you're, if your glasses fog up, that means aerosols are escaping up the front of the mask. The aerosols that might include COVID virus, uh, virus particles. And so, and it turns out that there was no randomized evidence in March of 2021 at all regarding masking and children. In fact, that's true today. Not one randomized trial evaluates whether masking children has any effect on disease spread. 
And uh, so when Governor DeSantis asked me, is it a good idea? Is there evidence that, that, that masking children is effective for limiting the spread of COVID-19 or something, something that effect? I told him, no, there's no high quality evidence to that effect, no randomized evidence at all. And, it, um, you know, is there evidence that uh, children are harmed by masks? Well, I'd been, I'd been hearing from a lot of, of moms and dads of autistic children who told me about the difficulty their kids had with masking. I'd been hearing from, um, from uh, parents of deaf children who were telling me about the about what what difficulties the lives were being caused by masking for the, for for disabled children like that, and so I said, well, I don't know that it's harmful for every kid, but I do think that there, there are kids that are harmed by it. So if you combine those two things, there's no high quality evidence of any benefit, and uh, there, if there's some evidence of harms. Well, I mean, I just don't think it would made sense to mask. This is what I told Governor DeSantis. The the TV cameras were there, so there was like people from you know there was like TV news was there, some local local like ABC, CBS or whatever affiliate was there. They videoed me telling the governor that, and they put it on YouTube. Um, YouTube then censored a, the advice that the the sitting governor of Florida was getting from his scientific advisors. I mean, even just from a good government perspective, wouldn't you want to know the advice that your governor or your or your uh, premier was getting? Like that's that's like what a good you know a good public servant does. They're not trying to hide anything. They're just trying to show here's the advice I'm getting. But YouTube censored that video. YouTube took it down so that so that the people of Florida, the people of the United States, people of the world couldn't see what advice um, the scientific advisors of Governor DeSantis was getting. And there was the Alex Berenson case as well, which I'm going to be writing about very soon about my experiences trying to write about it at the time. But he was heavily censored. He was kicked off Twitter for claims such as the vaccines don't stop transmission. They have yeah, it was, no, that was totally right, though, right? I mean, it's unbelievable that he was kicked off Twitter for that. He, he, learned, he actually was on, on that case earlier than almost anybody else. Like he was looking at uh, information out of places like Israel and saying, look, this, this vaccine is not working to stop transmission. He was right and censored for being And he was early on the myocarditis stuff as well because he was looking at the data from Israel, from U.S. military members as well. And that's also one of the things he said, that there could be potentially serious side effects for males uh, in particular. Um, and he was censored for that. And there was a lawsuit that went on with Twitter, which there was a, a landmark settlement for. But he, I mean, I mean this, the censoring him made almost no sense. But, I mean, he was this one figure that was dissenting from the mainstream view, and he was a credible journalist, um, although he was on Substack and not with the New York Times anymore. But the way they attacked him, including the Atlantic, you know, the pandemic's wrongest man, and other outlets as well, I believe Vanity Fair and Time Magazine also ran hit pieces on him. Um, it was all incredibly unfair and wasn't actually dealing with the substance of what he was saying. Yeah, I mean, I think Atlanta ran a piece in calling him the the, the world's the internet most wrong, the wrongest the, man or something. It was just, the, the the pandemic's wrongest man. The pandemic's wrongest man. I mean, it was it was really uh, unfortunate, especially since he was engaging with the evidence and knew about the evidence much better than many of these many of these like media outlets that slandered him. And there was also the Twitter files as well, which <laughs> rings all to uh, home for us here, Jay. Uh, obviously, you were blacklisted 
for quite some time up until Elon Musk took over and the Twitter files revealed that you were blacklisted, you were prevented from trending. I believe search engines were also blocking you for some period of time. I mean, <laughs> it's pretty shocking. Yeah, I, 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 was, yeah. I was on the blacklist the day I joined Twitter, Rob. Literally the day I joined. I, I learned this when I got to go visit with Elon Musk uh, after Barry Weiss wrote her fantastic uh, Twitter files exposing that I'd been on a blacklist. Um, so it, you know, like the question is why? Why did Twitter put me on a blacklist? I joined Twitter in August 2021 in part and mainly to get my message out regarding COVID lockdowns and whatnot. Why did they put me on a trend blacklist? Who who made them do it? Like it's just hard for me to imagine that Twitter decided because I posted the Great Barrington Declaration that by themselves they were going to put me on a trends black a blacklist. Um, I mean, this is, I, I think it's not it's not a coincidence. Now I think we maybe we can get some of the evidence of this. I don't think it's a coincidence that Twitter decided to do this, and also that uh, you had people like Francis Collins and Tony Fauci organizing a propaganda campaign against. Uh, against the Great Barrington Declaration. And how do you think that informs the current Twitter experience now that you are you know, freely allowed to promote your content? Do you feel like this is a big change in how you get to communicate to people? And how do you view in retrospect, now that you know that you were blacklisted, that a lot of things you were sharing at the time. I mean, I mean, they were getting a lot of traction despite that, but what do you feel about the information that you were putting out? Do you think it could have potentially reached more people and changed potential policy decisions or changed the tenor of the media discourse? I do actually. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, that's not, not just me, of course. I mean, I think, I think if the media environment and the, and the social media environment had permitted more of this kind of dissent, we would have had a very different set of policies. We wouldn't have had um, the extended school closures. We wouldn't have had uh, the, the, you know, the, the, these mandates, at least not a mandates without accounting for immunity after COVID recovery. Uh, we would have avoided many of the, 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 the policies, like the, the ignoring um, the necessity of protecting older people in, in, uh, in the early days of the pandemic and the, and the relatively low risk to young people acknowledging myocarditis as a, as a real threat to uh, a real risk from taking the vaccines for young men, all that stuff would have come out earlier. I think um, uh, like the, what, like my, from a personal point of view, like personally, when I, uh, at, when, after the Twitter files um, uh, expose and, you know, shortly after uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter and sort of freed it from its shackles, um, my, my follower account doubled. And it was really clear I was engaging with a much broader set of people than I was before uh, the, before when Twitter 1.0 censorship blacklist was in place. Um, I, I, just, I think that the thumb on the scale in basically every social media company and in, in the media and elsewhere played a really malign role in the pandemic. It led to terrible policies that ultimately, I think, more people are dead as a result, both from COVID and also from the collateral harms of the lockdowns and than would would be today had there not been this censorship environment. And I know you've talked about this on Unheard and a few other places, but just briefly, what was the experience like at Twitter HQ? Um, Did you meet Elon personally? Did you talk to people behind the scenes in the engineering department and people who were moderating the content? Um, What was that experience like for you? 
Oh, it was, it was surreal. I mean, it was like, basically I got the message inviting me to come up to Twitter. It was on a Sunday. I was like, it was like over Christmas break. I was going to just relax, but I'm like, okay, I should, I should, if Elon Musk is inviting me, I should go. Right. Um, and I arrived and I got introduced to a Twitter engineer who then showed me uh, the internal Twitter databases where my blacklist was. Like you could, you could see it black and white. I asked him, well, when did this blacklist start? So you had to like dig a little and he found, he showed me like this, the blacklist started the day I joined Twitter. Um, and then, um, and then I got to meet with Elon Musk for an hour. Uh, and it was like late at night, you know, like nine, 10 at night. He was, he had been working, like I, I, I waited outside this conference room where he was huddled together with a bunch of engineers. There was, you know, this vast Twitter headquarters where like thousands of people used to work and he's fired like 80% of the staff and the, the staff that's remaining is like working like heck to like make sure Twitter keeps running and at the same time, improve its, improve its like functioning. Um, and he's there every night trying to make sure that happens. And he met with me for an hour. I was really impressed. Like I, I, I asked him, you know, why is he doing this? Why did he buy Twitter? cost him $44 billion. It left him open to all kinds of lawsuits and things. And he's like, he's, he's like shined light into the, with these Twitter files into sort of the, the malign things that the old management of Twitter had done in terms of suppression, suppression and censorship, um, potentially leaving him open to legal, legal attack. And he said, look, uh, I think that civilization doesn't survive unless we have free speech. And that's his motivation. I was actually quite impressed by that. Still moved by that. Going back to Alex Berenson, who was also invited to Twitter, um, government officials like Andy Slavitt were pressuring Twitter to ban Alex. Um, that relates to the Missouri versus Biden case we'll talk about in a second. But it, it was just incredible how government officials like Slavitt, um, also Scott Gottlieb, who uh, with Pfizer, was also pressuring um, social media companies to ban Alex because uh, Fauci was at risk or misinformation was being spread. I mean, all these vague justifications for increasing censorship. Well, Slavit, I think was a white house advisor. Yes. Right. So in a, in a sense, like what you have is like, you have someone like Slavit who is a representative of the, of the government sending messages to media companies essentially ordering on behalf of the Biden administration, ordering censorship. Like it's a direct violation of the American first amendment. You, you should never have, you should never have government officials doing that. But we, let, so let me, let me tell uh, the listeners about the Missouri versus Biden case. Cause that's, I think the key to unlocking understanding what exactly happened with the censorship environment. Um, as, as well as Alex cases, I should, I should mention. Um, so Missouri versus Biden, it was brought by the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's Office against the Biden administration um, because of these First Amendment violations. Uh, I'm a party to the lawsuit. Uh, I, me, Martin Kuldorf, a couple other folks, uh, Aaron Cariotti, are parties to this lawsuit. And um, because we faced the censorship effort from the federal government. The, uh, the 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 uh, I'm, I'm represented by the New Civil Liberties Alliance. The the the, the thing that was interesting about this was that was that we got to depose people like Tony Fauci and a dozen other high officials within the Biden administration and the and the health bureaucracies of the United States, including actually also the FBI. 
we've got to have a discovery uh, process that uncovered a tremendous trove of communications, regular communications between the White House and social media companies. And what the picture it painted was absolutely shocking, Rav. It's, it, the picture it painted is of a, uh, of an administration that was very comfortable ordering the social media companies to, to censor various ideas, often particular people. And, uh, the, there's, they would threaten the media companies with essentially regulatory action if they didn't comply. Right. So for instance, the social media companies in the United States are protected by a law called the Communication Decency Act. And there's a section of that act called the Section 230. And what that Section 230 says is that if, uh, if the, like say Twitter publishes me, well, they're not responsible for the content that I have, uh, that I put in my tweets, right? They're not a, they're not a traditional publisher. The publisher publishes defamatory things. You can sue the publisher. Well, Section 230 says if, if they allow to be published on their platform defamatory ideas and things, um, well, you can't sue Twitter. They're legally immune because of Section 230. That allows social media companies to exist, right? No, Twitter couldn't exist if they had to face lawsuits every time some somebody, some random person uh, slandered somebody else, right? That, you know, 90% of Twitter content would go away. And so, you know, in a way, it's 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 an enabling act for uh, for the internet and for social media on the internet. Well, these emails from the White House to social media companies essentially would threaten this Section 230 protection and say, well, look, if you don't act by censoring this these ideas and these people, then you know regulators might come. It'd be it's an awful thing that if it, you know it's such a nice company you got going, if it would be horrible if something were to happen to it, you know that kind of that kind of thing. It's almost like a mob like mentality. Um, you know, to some extent, social media companies cooperated because, they, as I said, they they were they were interested in helping with the with with COVID nineteen, but often they would fight back and then get threatened by government actors saying you better censor. The government organized a censorship campaign. It's the central player in the reason why the media behaved like, uh, behaved in such a, such a, uh, sort of such an, uh, unusual way, suppressing ideas and discussions and debate. Why social media, uh, specifically censored things that were contrary to government policy. It was the government that was at the center of the censorship industrial complex. The remarkable thing is that the media didn't help, didn't hold big pharma um, and these government agencies accountable for what they were doing. And a lot of people were calling this kind of behavior by the government totalitarian, uh, authoritarian, sort of extremist, imposing these uh, rules, regulations, threats um, on social media and pressuring them to increasingly censor dissenting voices. Um, This is one thing that Glenn Greenwald has emphasized a lot, uh, Matt Taibbi as well. And it's one thing that they kind of get attacked for as well. But, you know, but they say, well, the the, the nexus of power in the United States has increasingly moved towards centralized kind of authority um, where the media and government agencies, and in this case, including kind of pharmaceutical uh, companies as well, are all kind of in bed coordinating with the government as the central actor 
increasingly pressuring these companies to censor content that they disagree with and deem unacceptable. I mean, that's why you see a lot of people on the left, again, like Glenn, Matt, Russell Brand, who as, as, as members of the left, members who oppose government uh, totalitarianism are opposing this kind of thing. But bizarrely, you see a lot of mainstream journalists in liberal or progressive media take the side of the government that they're doing noble work in censoring content that's going to get people killed or going to harm people. It's going to harm society. I mean, all, all that is very strange why there wasn't more journalistic skepticism and criticism for this kind of behavior. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's funny, uh, like if you think about uh, the censorship effort, even the even the White House itself at one point was caught caught in you know, hoisted by its own petard. Like the, so, if you remember, in April of 2021, the CDC uh, issued a pause on the J and J vaccine because there had been some signal of uh, of women, um, middle aged women and younger women having strokes ca- potentially caused by the J and J vaccine. They paused the vaccine for a week. After that, actually, vaccine uptake sort of plummeted. Um, not just the J and J, sort of all the vaccines. Um, but it, it was interesting. Um, the CDC re- issues this guidance saying the J and J vaccine should be paused for a week, and then a week later they lift the pause. There are all these emails from the White House complaining to Facebook about their own f- Facebook page, the White House Facebook page being deboosted because the algorithms that the social media companies set up to promote the uptake of the vaccines at the, again, these, these algorithms at the behest of public health and at the behest of the government had essentially ensnared the Facebook page of the white house, which was, had just reported that the government was pausing the the vaccine. They called, they effectively identified the white house itself as anti-vax and censored it. Um, it, it's just, it's just, it's one of these things where like, you really should just allow open discussion. You're going to get false things that are put out there. That is absolutely true when, when you allow open discussion. Um, but at the same time, you're also going to have the, the capacity for people to openly correct the false things. And instead you have an environment that where, where the thumb is on the scale, where, where true things are suppressed. And because everybody knows that there's this suppression going on, no one trusts uh, truth, even true things that are put out by the government and by public health. I really think free speech should be the overarching value in all of this. But the, what the overarching kind of value was, you know, keeping people safe, stopping the spread of disinformation, all of that carrying this kind of valence of arrogance that that these agencies have it right, which obviously the CDC and the FDA have been wrong time and time again about masking, about vaccines and lockdowns. Um, But really, even if you think that the CDC and the FDA are deeply responsible and righteous organizations that are putting out high quality, accurate information, you still, in my view, shouldn't be imposing these censorious regulations because they very well could be wrong. I mean, you could be wrong. I mean, anyone with this kind of power during a a global pandemic is going to get some things wrong. It's never going to be perfect. But to have this kind of arrogance that 
the government is going to be right at all times or many times and the people are never going to be right in their criticisms of towards the government therefore there should be this government enforced uh, suppression of free speech i mean all of that is incredibly naive myopic and and has been proven to be a, a fatal kind of approach to regulating information online yeah i mean i think i think i agree with you i mean i think that um it's we don't there's no utopia possible there's no world in which only true things are said and no false things are said and all true things are said right that's that's not that's not possible the world we live in there's going to be a mix of true and false things that are put out there sometimes false things will will spread the best hope we have is free speech to correct false things when they come out and allow false, true things that are inconvenient to the government, that are inconvenient to powerful people um, to come out despite the fact that those powerful people don't want it to come out. That's really the best hope we have. I mean, there's no, there's no world where you can imagine uh, a, a, you know, an omniscient authority understands exactly the difference between true and false and benevolently uh, uh, guides the public discussion to only focus on true things. That just doesn't exist. That's a fantasy. And in fact, what ends up happening is the, the government, um, this, this, this authority that's supposedly omniscient often puts out things that are false. That's happened during the pandemic, Rob. It happened over and over and over and over again during the pandemic. I mean, I wrote a letter with Martin Kuldorf and the Indiana Attorney General to the Surgeon General in, um, I think it was like 2020, late 2021, early 2022. Uh, the, the, the Surgeon General put out a call asking for examples of, mi of misinformation that people saw online. And they wanted to suppress that. They were saying, okay, well, how can we help suppress that mis spread of misinformation online? And the letter I wrote to the Surgeon General is basically it 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 found it, it it listed I think like ten different places or times when the government itself was the main source of mis misinformation, and it wasn't just like trivial things; these were like absolutely critical, vital things that harmed people because the government was a source of misinformation. Right. So we cited things like, you know, uh, the difference between someone dying from COVID versus dying with COVID. Sounds like a trivial distinction, but it's actually a really important one, because if you if you conflate people who die incidentally with COVID, um, and count it as a as COVID as the main cause, you're gonna you're gonna like stoke fear in the population that's not consistent with the actual danger of COVID. You know, there was uh, a study in uh, Santa Clara County and another one in Alameda County, California, of death certificates. And um, what they found was that uh, when they did the compared against autopsies, there's 25% overcounting of COVID cases in 2021 in California. Is, these are like official public health studies. Um, we already talked about natural immunity, in particular immunity after COVID recovery, how that was suppressed. That was that was actually quite important because that um, by by ignoring that, a lot of people were subject to vaccine mandates that were completely useless for them. And uh, the idea that natural immunity is somehow a dangerous idea for people to know about, well, actually, no. It, what it does is it allows people to have a better sense of what their true risk is from getting COVID. And, uh, you know, why would you not want people to have that? 
that COVID vaccines prevent transmission. That was misinformation put up by the government. That school closures are effective and costless. Schools closed in California for almost a year and a half or more. Uh, and children's lives are disrupted on the basis of a falsehood that the, somehow the scientific evidence supported school closures when it didn't. Um, that e everyone's equally at risk of dying from COVID when in fact it's older people that are high risk. A lot of older people um, uh, sort, of, sort of underestimated their risk, probably took fewer precautions they should have in 2020 and 2021. Um, and a lot of old, younger people disrupted their lives on the false impression that they were at high risk of dying if they get COVID when in fact they weren't. Um, that, that there's no policy alternative to lockdown? Well, there was. There was focus protection. There was the GBD. That mask mandates are effective in reducing COVID spread? I mean, that's just laughable, right? You, you had uh, high-quality outlets like the Cochrane um, Collaborative putting out meta-analyses in November of 2020 saying that, 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 that there is no high-quality evidence suggesting that masks work to protect, prevent the spread of COVID. And yet that's misinformation to say that through much of the pandemic, that somehow mass asymptomatic testing and contact tracing could be effective in reducing COVID spread? That's false. Uh, you have, like, for instance, the UK government, after spending 30, 30 40 uh, billion pounds on their contact tracing programs, come out with reports saying it was a, a tremendous costly failure. And then finally, probably the worst of it all, that somehow eradicating COVID is a feasible goal, that zero COVID is a good idea. Well, that was false from the day that COVID arrived in, in human populations. Um, a all this misinformation was put out by the government, and it was tremendously harmful to the public discussion, and it led to the adoption of policies that have caused tremendous collateral harm and collapsed the public trust in public health. It's just incredible that they got so many things wrong. Many of those things which I've been tracking since the mandates were rolled out for vaccination in 2021, but it, it really awakened me to just how fragile and human and and inf and infallible these institutions are. Uh, I, I I remember earlier in this conversation I was going to mention um, how at the beginning uh, of the pandemic I wasn't really closely and critically tracking all the information coming from the government. Um, at that time, I was writing a lot about Black Lives Matter and policing and identity politics. That was kind of my rise in the journalism industry. But I I, I just assumed just in the way that I trust my dentist, uh, well, I was going to say trust my doctor, but increasingly distrust my doctor with, with a number of um, issues pertaining to mind and body and preventative medicine and uh, uh holistic care of my body and whatnot, but just in the way that I trust uh, my dentist or my orthodontist or, or, or definitely, you know, getting blood work done, getting various testing done by my family doctor, in all those ways that I trust these medical uh, authorities on these topics, um, I, I was also kind of implicitly trusting the medical authorities uh, at the time. But when it came to the mandates, when it came to my rights in 2021, and I started critically looking into, you know, whether vaccination made sense in my particular case and realizing that there actually wasn't as strong of a case for vaccination as the government agencies were saying here in Canada and the United States. It, it, it occurred to me that the, the government isn't always right. And in fact, they were quite wrong about this. And so the more I looked, 
you know, all the topics you mentioned, natural immunity, overcounting COVID cases, overcounting COVID deaths uh, as well, uh, failing to differentiate between deaths from COVID and with COVID, being particularly honest about who actually is dying from COVID, right? I mean, as we know, the risk factors for that weren't really properly disclosed. And there was this kind of fear mongering where everyone was at great risk when in fact it was actually mostly elderly, obese and immunocompromised people with various comorbidities rather than uh, ordinary people who are healthy, um, who don't have any serious health conditions. I mean, all of this has been a great dark and kind of cynical teaching for me about just how wrong, you know, people wearing lab coats, people with PhDs and MDs can be so fatally wrong about so many topics. I mean, it, it, it does evoke a deep sense of, of cynicism and moving forward, I, I think myself included and many other people are going to be more and more skeptical when public health makes these kind of decrees because they've shown just how deeply flawed and fallible they are. I mean, the, the funny thing, Rob, is that, you know, scientists, if science is done right, um, when, when you're investigating a subject that's at the, at the, at the edge of science, but, but people just don't know yet, like, I'm not talking about like, you know, how many miles away is the sun from the earth or whatever. I mean, like, you know, things where like there's actual scientific controversy, scientists disagree with each other all the time. We're wrong all the time. That's part of being a scientist. You have a hypothesis, you do some study and you look at the data and it disproves your hypothesis. That's not, there's nothing wrong or sinful or bad about that. Um, that's actually what allows people to trust science, the, the output of scientific method is, is because scientists are so often wrong, but they have a systematic way to self-correct with data, debate, and so on. That being wrong is actually builds trust, like as long as you're humble about it, builds trust in science and scientists. The problem here is you have this arrogance, this hubris that somehow in the midst of this pandemic for this, this virus that's, that's, that no one knew about before, you know, I don't know, December 2019 or something, or maybe maybe July 2019, um, whatever date you want to pick. But this virus, I mean, who knows exactly when people started to know about it. Uh, the point is that most of the, most of the scientific community, community didn't know about it until 2020. The, the idea that somehow a small number of high government officials, people like Tony Fauci, could know infallibly all kinds of things about this, such that you can you suppress the alternate ideas of other scientists and other people. That is the central problem here. That's what led to the collapse in trust. That's what led to the embrace by the government of so many things that turned out ex post to be wrong. They should have allowed debate and discussion freely to happen. And so that scientists and public policy, uh, people in public policy and public health could correct each other. And instead you had a small group of scientific bureaucrats with tremendous power abusing that power, uh, leading the media environment to be such that it, it was very difficult for such a, a conversation to take place. And just to end on this moving forward with public health, what do you think the relationship is going to be between ordinary citizens and public health institutions? Uh, do you think there's going to be a real crisis, some of which we're already seeing in declining trust and just a, a lack 
a, a marked decline in compliance for health orders, more skepticism, potentially even more kind of, you know, conspiratorial trink, uh, thinking as well, because those people prone to conspiracy thinking are, they now have more and more to work with, <laughs> more <laughs> to be greatly skeptical and critical of these agencies. What, what do you think this landscape is going to look like moving forward? I mean, I think, I think, um, that crisis is already here. I think I saw a statistic that there's a like a worldwide there's a 44% increase in he- hesitancy about vaccines, you know, essential vaccines like the childhood vaccines. Um, the public trust in public health is as low as it's ever been. I I'm actually quite sad about that because I think that public health could be a great force for good, Rav. Um, but I don't see how that gets fixed until public health straightforwardly acknowledges its errors during the pandemic and then systematically puts in place reforms to make sure that those errors never happen again or errors like them never happen again, particularly censorship. Um, I, I don't see how that can get fixed until there's some uh, some humility on the part of public health. And I do think it's vital. I don't see, it's going to take a long time. I mean, there, you know, public health is giving itself awards for how well it did during the pandemic, even though it was, an, uh, it, you know, millions of people have died under public health management during the pandemic. Um, so, uh, you know, I just, I, 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 I am going to work toward a better future where public health becomes trustworthy. Um, but that's going to require reforms that I don't see happening in the immediate future. I totally agree with you, Jay. Um, I really do. Um, and I, I similarly am concerned about the future of, of public health and for, for personal health, or, you know, for people and their own health, you know, where do they go if, if they can't trust public health institutions? Is that going to lead to a rise, a, a, a positive rise in kind of more alternative and holistic medicine? Or is that going to lead to more crystals and beads and, you know, strange natural supplements or whatever? I mean, it, it, there, there could be a lot of good with a lot of this because there are lots of things to learn from uh, more alternative and holistic kinds of uh, mind body medical models, but there's obviously a tendency for some people to go down the conspiratorial conspiratorial route as well. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, before we sign off, um, uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention, Jay? No, I think let's, let's, uh, we had a pretty good conversation. I'm looking for, I guess I'm looking for the Q and a next time though. Maybe that'll be, that'll be fun to do. Yes. Okay. Okay. okay let's, let's take a quick pause here, Jay. Um, actually, my my friend slash assistant here, um, I can tee him up in a second. He's he's been monitoring a lot of questions coming in from social media and in the comments. And he has how many questions do you have? Do you want to try like th- him throwing you three questions as our kind of assistant? He has he's kind of made three questions based on uh, a lot of the uh, sentiments and questions online. Sure. You, you want to try that? Yeah, let's give it a shot. Okay, okay, let's try it. Okay. All right, so we have uh, my assistant here, Sam Ciarto, who's increasingly taking on a lot of uh, administrative and kind of managerial roles as this substack grows. And there's just a lot of uh, work to do behind the scenes with management and monitoring promotion and social media and whatnot. And he's went online and tracked a lot of the questions that have come in on social media and on our substack, uh, on comment sections for Apple and Spotify various uh, platforms online. Um, and uh, he's got three questions here that he's going to ask Dr. J. I'm going to pass it over to him. 
Thanks, Sam. Nice to talk with you. All right. After a quick switch up in the studio here, Dr. J, what an honor and privilege it was to uh, sit in uh, into this podcast today. Um, like Rob kind of set me up here, I've kind of scoured uh, over uh, several of our social media platforms and uh, uh, found three, uh, I think, pretty interesting questions that uh, I wanted to shoot your way here. Uh, first, um, I think that it's uh, it's pretty evident that, you know, you, you've gone through a lot through this COVID uh, uh, case uh, in the past couple years. Uh, and in regards to, you know, the, uh, the cens- censorship, uh, the death threats, and uh, the other backlash you faced, um, some of our viewers are just wondering, how, how did this affect you? How, uh, in a sense, how are you doing amongst all this? That's so kind of them to ask. Um, I have to say, like, my life is overturned in many ways. I mean, not my, not my personal life. My, I'm still um, happily married and I have my, my three kids and they're, they're, they're doing okay. Um, but my professional life is fundamentally overturned. But at, the, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was just a researcher. I published, I was very happy as a researcher and a teacher. I mean, it, and it made me, uh, it, and, and uh, now so many of my colleagues, I mean, some, a hundred of them signed a letter wanting to get me silenced inside the university. Um, I'm not sure how I can, I mean, I've, I've worked very hard to forgive them, but I don't see how I can work with some of them again. Um, on the other hand, I've now met so many interesting colleagues uh, outside of uh, my circles before. And um, I find myself in a place where the platform to potentially help reform public health in a way that that, that really does benefit the public, um, make it into a thing that potentially could um, could be really a force for good, which it, which it you know it, it really wasn't so much during the pandemic. It, 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 it at least not as good as good as it could have been. So uh, I'm doing okay, but I it, I am wondering exactly how whether I could ever go back to being you know a researcher, you know, mainly a researcher again. Incredible, incredible. I'm sure a lot of our viewers are uh, are sure hoping for that. Um, another one, uh, second question here. Um, this one's quite lengthy, so uh, um, just tried to put this into a question form here. Um, it looks like one of our viewers commented that, you know, the scientific method uh, really forms the basis of a common rationality, both in uh, the scientific field as well as uh, the overarching academic field. Um, and we're just wondering how, you know, your colleagues and other, <laughs> our, our viewer put quotations, uh, scientists in your field uh, can reach uh, such crazy uh, conclusions, um, you know, uh, making sense of censorship uh, and almost uh, backing it up. Well, you know, I, it's funny about science and, and crazy con- conclusions. Often things that look crazy in science turn out to be true. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's why it's not just simply if you have a theory, uh, theories can be anything, um, but then you have to like test the theories, to test the implications of the theories and be willing and open-minded to say, okay, well, these implications don't aren't matched by the data. But you have to be you have to do that even with accepted scientific theories like people are still challenging um einstein's theory of general relativity right the, the, these are these are like this is how science works we're skeptical about everything and the fact that a theory looks crazy is not evidence that it's wrong very often those crazy theories turn out to be right um what happened during the pandemic is the opposite of science what happened during the pandemic was that 
people uh, in public health, particularly like people like Tony Fauci, they landed on one particular theory about how the disease spreads and how and about the immunity and so on. And they didn't allow challenges, right? You can see this in like uh, the famous thing that Tony Fauci said at one point where he, where he was challenged. He said, look, uh, if you challenge me, you're not simply questioning a man, you are questioning science itself. I mean, that kind of arrogance has no place in science, at least not, not in the, the, in the, in the um, minds of someone who controls vast scientific budgets like Tony Fauci does. Um, the scientific method it at heart is actually a humble thing, right? It allows that even the most brilliant genius scientist is wrong. And when the data say it are wrong, and if the challenge is between the brilliant genius scientist and the humble scientist who develops a data point that proves that the, that the, that what the theories of the, the, the genius is wrong, well, the, 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 the non-genius is right. They may not, still not, may not come up with a fantastic theory um, to replace it, but, they, but they've proven the, the existing theory wrong. It doesn't matter who you are in science. It matters is what, what are arguments are you bringing? What data are you bringing? And uh, unfortunately, we've gotten away from that during the pandemic. Wow, what a great answer. Thank you so much. Um, one last question here. Uh, again, we really appreciate your time and what a great conversation it's been today. Again, Dr. J, we really do appreciate uh, your time and insight here. Um, final question here from one of our viewers. Um, they're wondering, uh, would it be fair to label the censorship slash partnership between uh, politicians and social media platforms uh, as fundamentally dishonest? I mean, absolutely dishonest, right? Because in, fa in fact, the dishonesty is, is, is mainly the point of it. You had a government that wanted to, to control the behavior of populations. It was willing to embrace ideas that were at odds with what the scientific evidence was saying. And then the social media companies then used the directions from the government to suppress honest conversation so that the, the population at large would believe the false thing rather than the true thing. The dishonesty is the central reason why public trust and public health has collapsed. It's, it's also the, 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 for, for social media companies, I think a real danger, right? If social media companies are seen as places where, uh, really all you go is for, for, for government propaganda, people will start looking elsewhere. There's a good reason, for instance, why Substack has taken off or why Twitter has grown so much since, since uh, Elon Musk took over, right? People don't want the media the, where they publish and talk to suppress their thinking. They want places that where they should be allowed to be wrong and have conversations with other people um, who, who, who can challenge them. I mean, that's really what they want. I mean, of course, some people want uh, their, 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 their bubbles, but, um, but the but, and social media permits that too. But the key thing is the open platforms, I think in the long run will, will succeed. Um, the, 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 the big threat is if government uses its regulatory power to, 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 to crush the ability to have these open platforms. That's what happened during the pandemic, I think. Um, you see social media companies uh, threatened by government actors, the regulatory threats that essentially would put these social media companies out of existence. And so they're put in a very difficult place. Either they live up to what they they say they want to do, you know, like the, uh, you know, I think Jack Dorsey, when he founded Twitter, 
famously said that it was, you know, he was like the, 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 the free speech was at the heart of what he was doing. He was the free, you know, whereas, um, whereas now if they, if they, uh, don't comply with government, government orders, well, then they're, then they, 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 they can't, they both can't fulfill their mission of, of permitting free speech on the web and also, uh, at the same time continue to exist as a company, put them in a really hard place. Um, I think as a society, we need to get back to, to the government respecting the free speech rights of people. You'll have better scientific outcomes, better public, public health outcomes, and more healthy media companies as a result. Incredible, incredible. Thank you so much to the listeners for uh, sending in those uh, three uh, very insightful questions uh, that provided us for uh, quite the dialogue today. Uh, again, just a reminder to our Substack subscribers, we do have a Q&A session going up uh, for our members, uh, which we're going to be publishing a post for, giving you guys a chance to submit your questions uh, that you guys would like to have uh, answered by uh, Rav and uh, hopefully Jay. On, uh, we'll, we'll hopefully have you again on the podcast. Uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and chatting with us today. Um, it's it's been a true true honor. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Rav. All right, signing off uh, from the Rav Aurora podcast today. <laughs> Cut that last part. You did great, Sam. Tell Sam he was, he was fantastic. That was, I did not expect to bring Sam in, but Sam is in officially. That was good. Good job, Sam. Thank you. Yeah, that was great, Jay. It was good to get some... Yeah, that, that was fun, Rob. Thanks so much, man. I, I got to run, though. Yep. Sounds good, man. All right. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye now.